Well, I'm stunned that uh, the special music itself uh, contains the whole topic of what I'm got to, about to talk about. Let's turn to uh, Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2 and verse 11 and 12 is where we will focus. To every great reward, there is a price to pay. To every great reward, there is a price to pay. Now in Luke chapter 2 and verse 11, it says, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Before we keep going, I want to open up in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, that you've allowed us to be here. Everyone who is here, there's no accident. Every every single part was orchestrated by you, Lord. And uh, we know that even this message that you've placed on my heart, there was no accident. I pray, Father, that uh, it would go without uh, any stumbling and that you would speak to hearts today. I, it does, I don't want it to be my words, Lord. I want it to be your words. Meet with us and speak to our hearts today. We thank you, Lord, for all that you do in our lives. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. To every great reward, there is a price to pay. Now, in the verses that we just read, what we have is the coming of our Savior. And in fact, it's the shepherds getting the news, right? Now, of all the people that God could have told of the coming of the King of Kings, he told shepherds. Now, I turned to this passage and I, something really grabbed my attention while I was reading these, uh, these verses, especially in verse 12. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Now, for all this to have taken place, as you may know already, the king of kings set up a stage. In case you didn't know, God made everything possible so that he can enter in. You can imagine with me, the lights are set, the camera is ready, And now the hero, according to the script, is about to walk in. Jesus Christ was about to come in, our main character. It's our origin story now. And thus far, God had spoken or had not spoken to Israel for 420 years. For 420 years, God had not spoken to Israel. God had not spoken to a single person on earth. And now he was about to make the entrance of a lifetime. He spoke to Zechariah. And then we fast forward about a year or so, and we find Jesus. Find him wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. You see, for all this to have taken place, we had to first see the silent years. The silent years, it contained all these things where the Israelites, the chosen people of God, were taken by the Babylonians What happened to Babylon? Well, they're gone. You don't see them anymore. And then it came to Persia, Persia's turn. And Persia had part of Israel as well with them. And then Persia left the scene. And then the next character came in. 
You have Alexander and you have Philip. Philip and Alexander worked their way so that the Greek empire could become what it was. They organized a way so that they can all be speaking one language, Hellenistic Greek, also known as Kine Greek. And now everything that the Greek people adopted, they gave over to Rome. Julius Caesar finally takes the throne of the biggest empire in all of the world. Everything Greek turned into Rome, into Roman, and Julius Caesar, he adopts a son. Julius Caesar's son's name, if you may know, is Augustus Octavian Caesar. Now, I say he adopted this son because Augustus Caesar was not of the bloodline of Julius Caesar. Therefore, he made a lot of changes to the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire didn't run the same way as we would usually think of Rome. Back when Rome was trying to expand, what was happening is that the people of Rome would have to pay for every single Roman soldier so that they can keep expanding and expanding and expanding. You see, what the issue was that all the taxing was happening only in Rome. And then we have the beginning of chapter 2. What do we see here? And it came to pass in verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, and it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. You see, the historical narrative would have it that Augustus himself reformed the tax system. Augustus, when he came into power, he wanted to expand Rome so much that he wanted to reform the tax system so that Rome could grow even bigger and bigger. One of the quotes from Augustus himself, he says, I left Rome a city of marble, though I found it a city of bricks. So hang on a moment. Would this not have worked with any other Caesar? Because look what happens next in verse 2. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. And all went to be taxed, everyone into his own city. What Caesar Augustus did was that he changed the taxing system. He changed it from being paid only by Rome to provincial. Provincial taxes. Don't you love provincial taxes? So he started taxing Judea. And those who were part of the city of Bethlehem had to return to Bethlehem to pay their taxes. And then you have Luke 2. Now, something bothered me. As I said, something was bothering me in verse 12 is where it started to bother me. This shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. See, it wasn't that the angel didn't say Bethlehem. He said, he said it was the city of David. The angel spoke to shepherds who, you know, who were minding their own business. And the angel, he doesn't really mention the name of the baby either. And another thing is, the angel doesn't even bother telling the shepherds uh, better bring a gift. You're about to meet the king of kings. I don't know if you've noticed that. 
But I did find three reasons of why the words wrapped in swaddling clothes is so significant. Why is wrapped in swaddling clothes so significant? Because if you think about it, if the angels are mentioning, oh yeah, you're going to find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and stop there, okay, aren't every baby wrapped in swaddling clothes? Because they were. But he was lying in a manger. It was in a free feeding trough. So I found three reasons. Reason number one, why is swaddling clothes so significant? Because the swaddling clothes show Christ's humanity. Why is that significant? Christ is highlighted in his humanity. Christ put on humanity. God put on humanity. There was a time when the word swaddle is seen again in your Bible. If, if you're in Ezekiel, you don't have to turn there. Ezekiel 16 and verse 4, it mentions the word swaddle. But in this case, it mentions it for Israel's sake. And what it says is that Israel was not swaddled as a nation. See, this idea of swaddling means that they weren't ignored. Jesus was swaddled. Therefore, his parents cared about him as a baby. And that's a very interesting thing because the Savior was born into a good family, a family that will take care of him. This earthly family that he, that he had chosen to come to, he knew that they would take care of him. Mary and Joseph cared for Jesus. And the next question would come up, well, does Jesus, does God need caring for? Does God need caring for? Couldn't he have called 10,000 angels to come and take care of him? The rhetorical, well, yeah, he could have. And couldn't he have been born into royalty and then been taken care of by royal people? Not some girl and some guy randomly in Bethlehem, couldn't he have found a better spot to be born in than a manger? Yeah. Yes, yes, and yes. He could have. But Christ chose Mary and Joseph. There was a commentator who spoke on this, and he, what he said was, after an infant was born, the umbilical cord was cut and tied. Then the baby was washed, and he was rubbed with salt and oil and wrapped with strips of cloth. These strips kept the newborn warm and also ensured that the child's limbs would grow straight. That's the swaddling clothes. Oftentimes, as you read through your Bible, especially your New Testament, you're going to find that you will forget sometimes that Jesus Christ was also a human. Remember that the whole reason for Christmas is that Christ came down for you and for me. That's the whole reason. That's the whole story of it. Why did he come down? He came down for you and for me. Now, it'd be almost poetic to say that, oh, the swaddling clothes are like God wrapping a nice gift, giving it to us, and then we're untying it for Christmas Day. That'd be nice to say. But oftentimes we forget that Jesus Christ was also human when he came down to earth. It was God in human flesh. 
You know, there's many other religions that talk about how gods were on earth sometimes. There are some religions that would say that when there was a god that was born into this world, that they were already able to lift their mother and father right out of the womb. Or there's another one where they will say that they can walk on water, and then every footstep that they would take, there was a lotus that flowed. See, there's so many different things, but if you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Second Corinthians chapter eight and verse nine. It says, "For ye know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, that ye through his poverty might be rich." God put on the cloak of humanity. So that he could be with us. That is the meaning of Emmanuel. Emmanuel is what? God with us. So the swaddling clothes have a significance now. The swaddling clothes is God putting on this human flesh so that he could be with us. Oftentimes a religion will try to say that you have to do this and this and this and this and this so you can be with God. But what about a religion that says, no, God came already down for you? This humanity of Christ will one day display itself in the greatest act of love. The swaddling clothes of Christ show that he became a man for you and for me. So, first point was the humanity of Christ. But the second is the hurt of suffering. You're probably wondering, okay, well, what does hurt have to do with the swaddling clothes? What does suffering have to do with swaddling clothes? And I'll show it to you. Let's go back to Luke. Luke chapter 2. In verse 12. And this shall be a sign unto you, ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. Christ came to live with us, but he also came to live a sinless life, to suffer, and to die. And believe it or not, that is setting the pattern for our Christian living. Christian living is to suffer and to die daily. Christian living is to suffer and to die daily. Think about that. Living, dying, suffering daily. The swaddling clothes also show of what is to come one day. It's a foreshadowing. You see, usually in the Bible, there's only two reasons why a person would be wrapped in strips of cloth. First reason is their birth. Can you take a guess what the second reason is? Their death. Two reasons why a person would be wrapped in swaddling clothes. To be born and to die. Swaddling clothes show us that we ought to live with death in mind. Dying daily to ourselves. But also the suffering. 
I'll have you turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. First Peter chapter 3 and verse 14. Here's what it says. But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye, and be not afraid of their terror, neither be troubled. But and if ye suffer for righteousness' sake, happy are ye. Anyone wake up in the morning looking forward to suffer? It's not usually something that we look forward to. Here, turn to 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 12. Chapter 2 and verse 12, 2 Timothy. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. One chapter over, 2 Timothy 3.12. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. What a promise. Do you look forward to suffering? Did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? Did it ever occur to you that nothing ever occurred to God? Can you just imagine for a moment in the realms of heaven when God was about to enter in Jesus Christ. God was about to enter this scene. God, who knows everything from the past to the future and eternally, he knows it all. Can you see him looking forward to suffering? Yet he did. Right? He did. Because he did come down. And what we see here in Philippians 2.7 is, but made himself of no reputation and took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in a fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Usually it's out of the nature of man to go after suffering. We're not, you know, we're not glutton for punishment. As human beings... It is not normal that you want to go after suffering. But take it this way too. As Christians, we are not to run away from suffering. No one ever wakes up in the morning looking forward to that moment where they get to suffer. No one does. And here's the thing. If you wish to live for God, the promise is that you will suffer. Now, this is like a really doom and gloom type of thing. Pastor Devin, could you just uh, change the topic? Hang on a moment. There are a lot of religions even in this world that are based on the escape of suffering. I'm told of a story of a man. He was born into Indian royalty. He was born into Indian royalty in the northern part of India. And throughout his life, he owned everything he could possibly have as a human being. This man, he was Indian royalty. He had power. He was the prince. He was the next heir to the throne. And he was about to have it, too. He was about to have this throne. He had a wife. He had a child. He was about to have more children. But 
something happened. One day, he decides he's going to tour his kingdom. In touring his kingdom, the first thing he sees is there was a sick person. And he continued his tour, and he saw and he felt more compassion for this older gentleman he met during his tour. And he kept touring his kingdom, and what he found was there was a funeral. A man had passed away, and he was being carried along for his funeral. And finally, near the end of his tour, he meets one more person, and it's this man who had donned himself with orange garb. He was a monk. The prince, what he ended up doing was he left in the middle of the night, he left his wife, he left his child, and he escaped the palace, and he donned himself the orange robe, and then he went off into the wilderness, and he stayed in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights under a fig tree. Later on, he came up with a few doctrines. The man's name was Siddhartha Gautama, and if you know the name, it's who we know today as Buddha. Buddhism is completely based on the escape of suffering. That's what Buddhism is based on. What he came up with in his nihilistic mentality at the bottom of that fig tree is there is suffering, suffering has a cause, there is an end for suffering, and there is a path that leads to, end, to the end of suffering. So the whole religion was based on the escape of suffering. The whole world doesn't want to suffer, and they would rather not. What happens to countries, you can even see it throughout all of history, what has happened to countries that have adopted Buddhism as their state religion? Well, they turned into a third world country. They, they're closed off to any other religion now. And they lead the suicide rates in the world. Countries like Vietnam, Thailand, Burma, Bhutan, China, Japan, Korea, Sri Lanka, Cambodia, Laos, Indonesia, Nepal. Buddhism became the state religion. They ran, after, ran away from suffering. And now they lead the suicide rates. The world would rather run away from suffering. And Christ calls us to a life of suffering. Don't you see the paradox? Isn't that weird? How would you like to have your life hymn be born to die upon Calvary? You know, it's not normal that we would sing such a thing, especially when a child is born. Yet Christ's hymn would have been to, born, to be born to die upon Calvary. The cost for salvation you never have to pay for. Christ already paid for that. He paid for it on the cross. But the cost for discipleship will cost you highly. The cost for discipleship will cost you highly. You ever think about this? There is a cost for Christian liberty in Canada. Don't ever get into this illusion that there is no cost to worship in Canada. People are paying for it. People are suffering so that you can 
be worshiping in a church today. There were people that gave of their sweat, of their blood, of their tears. Look at every Christian hero that we've ever known. Look at how many tears that they've spilt. How much blood they have have gone through. Look at how much they've cried. They went through a lot of suffering so that some people can have a liberty. So that some people could have a reward. If you want to reach more kids for Christ, you're going to have to pay for it. If you want to see teens get saved or change lives, you're going to have to pay for it. If you want to see a Sunday school grow, you're going to have to pay for it. If you're going to see a bus ministry grow, you're going to have to pay for it. Everything has a price. Sunday schools don't just happen. Cantatas don't just happen. There was suffering involved. There was tears and there was agony going through it so that there could be a reward at the end. Luke 9, verse 23 to 25. And he said to them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Luke 9, 24. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be a castaway? You know that word castaway? I just want to pause for a moment here. You know that word castaway? We see it one more time. And the man who brings it up is Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 26 and 27. Turn there. Take a look at this. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 26 and 27. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 26 and 27, it says, I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air. But I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. See, there's something to be said about the comforting life, the comfortable life, especially when a Christian is living a very comfortable life. Paul understood that if you lived a comfortable life, then the race of life as a Christian You are lagging behind. See, he's illustrating it in a sense as an athlete would. An athlete has to subject his body to punishment, has to subject his body to suffering. You can't run a race after going to a buffet. And so in your Christian life, where do you find yourself right now? Paul himself knew how easy it is to live a life of comfort, but comforts will only go so far. What he found is that he had to embrace the life of suffering first. Why would Christ want to do this as well? And you know the answer. There is a reward. There's a reward. So, first we have the humanity of Christ. Why are swaddling clothes so special? You have the humanity of Christ. It shows that Christ cared so much for us, he was willing to come down for us. Then the second is you see the 
the harm or the hurt of suffering. He was willing to suffer for us. And then the third, why was he willing to suffer for us? Because there's an honor for his faithfulness, for the faithfulness. The honor of faithfulness. Christ knew this as well. He knew that coming down to earth, coming to suffer, is going to give a reward at at some point. Dying on the cross would bring a reward. And you know this. As a Christian, you know this. If you take a look at the Garden of Gethsemane, you won't have to turn there. There was suffering. And there's a medical term for the suffering that Jesus went through. It's called hematidrosis. Hematidrosis. And that's the technical term. That means to say to blood, uh, to sweat blood. And the thing is, a lot of people for a long time thought, oh, only Jesus Christ has ever done this. Only Jesus has ever sweat blood. But if you look through history, they've found much, many more papers. Leonardo da Vinci recorded of soldiers that were gearing up for war. And when they would take off their helmet, it would be bloodied. Why? Because they were under so so much duress that they started to bleed. They started to sweat blood. Another man, the Greek philosopher Aristotle, also recorded a time where he he witnessed this effect on people. And there's scientific papers on it. But it defines it, or it talks about it like this. Hematidrosis generally happens when a person feels intense fear or stress. Someone facing death may have this kind of fear or stress. Your body produces intense amounts of adrenaline and cortisol to help you with your fight-or-flight response. But for some, it can rupture the capillaries in the body. Capillaries are tiny blood vessels located throughout the tissue. They carry essential nutrients to different parts of the body. Capillaries are also located around the sweat glands. In cases of severe fear or stress, these tiny blood vessels can burst and cause blood to exit the body through the sweat glands. And according to all these papers, there's a lot of pain involved. There's a lot of suffering involved. Can you imagine the moment where Christ knew that he was going to come to earth, he was going to put on swaddling clothes, he was going to be laying in a manger, and then throughout his life, 33 and a half years later, he was going to have to go through this stressful duress. Can you imagine what was playing through in the realms of heaven when he was having to go through all this? Yet he did it. Let me ask you something. What are you willing to go through to see something good happen? Has it always been about what will fit you or what will be okay for you? Has it always been out of convenience that you made your decisions? Or is it because you knew that there was going to be a reward after the suffering? You were willing to put yourself through it. Christ came, he suffered, and he died. And we have the reward for it. He bought us. He bought this for us. Now he sets the pattern. These swaddling clothes, I've come to that point where it says, 
where it shows that it's a pattern for our life as well. Christ came to earth. He suffered. He died. Then he rose again. On this matter of suffering in Matthew 5, 11 and 12, it says, Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and shall say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Do you ever equate suffering with joy? Because that's what God is asking you to do. Equate the suffering with the joy. Don't see suffering as a negative thing in your life. See it as the best thing that God can give you, joy. Now, there are other ways that God gives joy to people, but suffering is one of the most effective ways. It says also in Isaiah 51, verse 7, Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. Fear ye not the reproach of men, neither be ye afraid of their revilings. And then, let me, let me turn there, Isaiah 5. Let's turn there. My notes have ran out. Isaiah 51, verse 7, and then jump down to verse 11. Hearken unto me, ye that know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. And then jump down to verse 11. Therefore the redeemed of the Lord shall return and come with singing unto Zion. And everlasting joy shall be upon their head. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and mournings shall flee away. No more suffering. It's interesting. I was told that oftentimes in churches, the serving is done only by 20% of those who attend. Now, I don't know our statistics, but I would say it'd be true in different churches. Many churches, only... 20% of their membership will do 80% of the work. Now, I was always wondering and asking myself constantly, what happens? Because everyone, you know, everyone's a Christian in that case, right? They're members and everything, and they're Christians. What happens once they get to heaven? Right? Right? Like, is, is one, per, one side of the story suffering through all of this and putting up with everything and then they're doing everything so that others, this 80%, can take advantage? Where's the reward? Where's the reward in that? It's interesting. You know the answer. There is a reward. There is a reward for those who suffer on earth and then end up in heaven. What ends up happening to them? What is their reward? Is it heaven? No, everyone gets heaven. But there is something more. Let's turn to Revelations. Revelation chapter 3. Sorry, chapter 2. Last book of the Bible, Revelation chapter 2. And verse 10. 
It says in chapter 2 and verse 10, Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that ye may be tried, and ye shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. Now let's turn to uh, chapter 3 and verse 11 of Revelations. Chapter 3 and verse 11. Behold, I come quickly. Hold that fast which thou hast, that no man take thy crown. So there's a reward. And these are crowns. And these crowns are given. Did you notice the churches that got the crowns, by the way? Of all the churches, the seven churches, the two churches that are spoken positively are given crowns. And the two churches that are talked about, that are given crowns, have a key to them. Did you see it? Let me show it to you. Two, in chapter 2 and verse 10, Be thou faithful unto death. Chapter 3 and verse 11, Hold that fast which thou hast. Faithfulness is the key. Faithfulness. Those who are suffering and putting, putting up with the fact that you are paying a price so that others can have a good time at church. Those who are being faithful in doing work, ministering, caring for others, and putting up with all of this, the reward is at the, at the end when you've stayed faithful to it. Revelation chapter 4, we're shown that the saints are casting their crowns at the feet of Jesus. I want to ask you, do you have a crown? There's five different crowns mentioned throughout the New Testament. The saints that were faithful through persecution and suffering, like the martyrs, they'll be getting something called the crown of life. The ones who keep shining their light for Christ, the ones who are doing soul winning, who go for soul winning, they get the crown of righteousness. The ones who become the pastors, they end up getting the crown of glory. The ones who don't take part in sin and don't indulge themselves with the comforts of this world and don't take part in the things of this world, they get something called the incorruptible crown. The ones who are faithful in the service of the Lord get the crown of rejoicing. Let me ask you something. When was the last time you were part of a ministry? Can you remember? When was the last time you ministered to someone? Can you remember? When was the last time you came out for soul winning? Can you remember? When was the last time you came out for a prayer meeting? Can you remember? See, the shepherds were told of an eternal event. This will never, ever happen again in history. Right? God came down to earth and he proclaimed he announced his arrival to shepherds of all the people. There is one more eternal event happening, but it's in the future. It's the crowning of Christ. Let me ask you something. Will you be able to put a crown at Jesus' feet? Have you been faithful in the things that you've been doing, that you've been given, that you've been stewarded to do? Have you been faithful Think about that. You have one life, and it's about to pass. 
We don't know if Christ will come, when, when he will come, but it will pass. And you know that death may be imminent. You don't know. As soon as you exit this building, we don't know what will happen. But would you have a crown to lay at Jesus' feet? Looking past in your life, I want to conclude here. Now realize that when Christ came to, wor- to this world, he came in swaddling clothes. He knew of all the suffering that he would have to go through, but he also knew that there was a reward at the end. Now, something else was happening. As I said, when I started this whole message, I talked about Augustus Caesar. What did he do? He reformed the taxes, right? He reformed the Roman tax system. He did something else. He demanded that the Roman mintage or the Roman treasury, that they stamp his image on the coin. Then you have the image of Caesar, right? One more thing. Usually in a country when they have coin, they have the face of the monarch. In the Philippines, it's Jose Rizal. He's not a monarch, but he's a hero. But they have a picture of somebody important. Augustus Caesar asked that his face be stamped on it. Not only that, that on the contour of of the coin, it was written, Son of God. I don't know if you knew this, but the words, Son of God, was written on the contour of these coins after he reformed the tax system. He also called himself the king of kings. You can see why in the Roman Empire, you had to worship Caesar or else. Right? So, you have the coming of two kings now. You see Caesar's life and what he did with the coin. What he did was he ended up serving himself. Christ saved you. He bought you with a price. Not only that, He stamped his image on you. That's what you call a seal. You're sealed by the Holy Spirit. So what are you doing with your life? How much greater would it be to be able to cast a crown at the feet of Jesus at the end of your life? Remember the swaddling clothes. The swaddling clothes means that Christ came down for you that he was willing to suffer and die for you, that he may receive the reward that you're still partaking in, salvation. But what will you give back to him this Christmas? Are you willing to suffer in this life to lay crowns one day at Christ's feet? Let's all stand for prayer.